Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Linux, Southeast Linux Fest was a blast. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the coverage that we brought to you live from Southeast Linux Fest, I suggest you check that out. Now, we were live. We planned on being live all three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We did our uh, initial episode at Southeast Linux Fest on Friday, where we talked about how Jupiter Broadcasting became the first open source company to do high quality professional video entirely on Linux. Now, that was an article I wrote for opensource.com, and it ha- it tells the story of how Jupiter Broadcasting started to broadcast entirely on Linux, how we switched our entire studio over to Linux, and how we switched our entire remote broadcast over to Linux. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, I will have a second article that is going to detail the technical details of how we set up to broadcast entirely on Linux. Now, the interesting thing about that technical talk is I actually already give that presentation at Southeast Linux Fest this past weekend. And so if you were a remote attendee, you paid the five bucks to, to, to get the talk, then you're able to download that now. And if you we're not a remote attendee, then that talk will be uploaded and available to you on YouTube as soon as as soon as the, the fine folks at Southeast Linux Fest uh, have time to process that and upload that. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Now, Saturday's episode was the small business episode. Um, sorry, I'm just responding to a message to my uh, my call screener. Uh, so Saturday's episode was our small business episode. And in our small business episode, we actually took you through some different small business ideas. We took some questions on small business and uh, we brought in some small business owners and explained to you exactly how they got their business running and what makes them successful. We talked to a very interesting gentleman um, by the name of Keith Perry. Now, Keith Perry works for a small technical company in Philadelphia. And I was later chatting with him and the rest of his team and he was telling me that their finance guy of all people is one of the people that is one of the people that actually does the most conversions to Linux. And the way that he goes about that is he attacks it from a financial perspective. So he who knows I guess not a lot about Linux or at least so I'm told from his colleagues will walk in and say, "Hey, you know what? This computer over here, you you should you should use a GNU cache instead of QuickBooks." And it's not even necessarily, you know, not necessarily the right answer for those particular circumstances. But he's so convincing. He's such a likable guy. And he's so passionate about his belief system that he legitimately is able to convert a lot of these people to Linux. And that's fantastic. Again, open phone again, open phone lines. one 855 450 I am. I want to expand a little bit on the small business thing because it's interesting. I, what I was really hoping I could do 
is find some real world examples of how if you are able to if if you're able to serve people well if you're able to do things well for people then then you uh then then it will serve your uh then you'll serve your clients well and you'll end up making a lot of money i want to go to the phones um looks like some of these calls are not screened so i'm just going to take them uh one by one uh, good evening you're on the ask noah show no hi what's up um uh, and in two parts i need a script that tells me if there's media in the optical drive just tells me if it's there or not and two you would you mind to shoot me off how you convert dvds to iso i'm sure using something like dd but i'm not familiar with dd too well yeah, for sure. What, now, when you say you want to detect if there's media, you want to know if there's media in the drive, or you want to know if the drive is available? Yeah, yeah. I want to know, I haven't been able to figure this one out and been all over yet. Is there media actually in the drive? I know what to do when there's media is to detect it. That, yeah, there's something there I can get. I can use like ISO info to get me the information I need, but I don't know of a reliable way to say, yeah, there's actually some media in the device at this time. Gotcha, um, and you just I want haven't a, found you just, a good solution for that. Gotcha, and you just want a script to do that? And Yeah, and if you wouldn't mind sending me off how you convert your DVDs to ISOs, if you're using DD command, I'm not familiar with it. I'm assuming you're a command, like me, kind of a commandish line half most of the time, and otherwise graphical other times. Um, for sure, you know. Yeah, I can I actually. I can. So I'll, I'll take the DVD know question. That command at all? Yeah, I'll take the DVD question right now. I'll answer that for you right here live on the air, and then I'll go and uh, we'll we'll put together a script for you, and we'll email that out. Just do me a favor, send an email to live at asknoahshow.com, and that makes that will make sure that we get back to you on on the script issue. As far as converting DVDs to ISOs, the simplest, most straightforward way that seems to work 100% of the time is to use Brasserio. Uh, either Brasseria or K3B. Either one of those programs, you put the optical drive, uh, excuse me, you put the optical disc, rather, in the drive, you open up the software, click on the button, and it will almost instantaneously convert the disc to a ISO. I've, I've used that numerous times, never really had an issue. <clears throat> now, you can go one step further if you'd like. You can use something like Make MKV to turn it from an ISO into the actual video files. The issue with doing that is you lose all of the menu structures. Now, that might not be some important to some people, but I can tell you with, 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 uh, without any equivocations that my media library is an exact identical replication of my DVD slash Blu-ray library. There's absolutely nothing that exists on my media library that didn't exist on the original DVD or Blu-ray. That includes languages, that includes all the special features, that includes all of the, even the cop down to the copyright warnings. All of that stuff exists on the media library. And so that's how I would suggest you back up your, uh, your media. Jeff calls from Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey Noah, uh, just I had a quick question about connecting a uh, Linux uh, college lab to Windows Active Directory. Okay. Um, so my my college uses uh, Windows for everything, um, and I was asked to find a way to connect a Linux lab that is being built to the Windows Active Directory. Um, the research that I have done has shown that SSSD and uh, Kerberos is a viable option. It's just, mm -hmm. I just need a sanity check. Uh, wondering if there's a better way to go about that. 
Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you this. This might be a little pie in the sky, but it would really simplify the answer to your question. Is there a possibility of swapping out that Active Directory controller? No, there's not. Okay. Unfortunately. Oh, that's okay. So that's the, those are the cards we're dealt. Uh, so according to Red Hat, I, I was actually talking with one of the people from Red Hat about this uh, last year, actually, at Southeast Linux Fest, and um, they're doing it through Kerberos. If they have a Windows environment and they are and they are tasked with getting one of their Red Hat machines to connect into an Active Directory environment, um, they're doing that with uh, with Kerberos. So that's that's the direction I would go. Now, a full disclosure, Jeff, I have not connected a Linux client to a Windows domain controller. Um I'm not the 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 reason that we would leave a domain controller in place would be for user management, policy, group policy management, those kinds of things. Um, typically, if if it's not doing one of those kinds of things, we'll take it out of production altogether. And if we've got and so the the first order of business is to try to get a Linux server in there, and then usually we have swapped the Linux servers out long before we've ever put the Linux clients into place. So I don't I personally don't have a lot of experience connecting. Linux clients to Windows Server infrastructure, but Kerberos would be the way to go if I was going to if I was going to go that route. All right, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. Again, open phones this hour one eight five five four five zero Noah eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. There is uh, some drama a brewing, and uh, I want to. I'm going to try to break this down for you as best I can without spreading any FUD. Um, in the past, we've talked about alternative Android ROMs. Now, these are alternative software packages that you can flash your phone with, alternative operating systems that you can install on your Android-based cell phone and eliminate a lot of the problems that you have with Google. What do I mean when I say problems with Google? Well, there are some privacy concerns because Google is well-known for invading people's privacy. Um, you can extend your battery life. When I installed one of these alternative ROMs on my Pixel, my battery life went up upwards of a week without Google Play services there. And so there are a number of different reasons why you might want to install a, an alternative ROM. And we covered a couple of them. One of them was Copperhead OS. Now, Copperhead OS is an alternative ROM that provides a security-hardened experience as a replacement for Android on their supported devices. And we had recommended Copperhead OS and told you that it was a great operating system. And, and to this day, I believe that. In fact, we had one of our listeners actually send in her phone to AltaSpeed Technologies for us to flash it for her with Copperhead OS. Now, it turns out that the model that she, the particular model that she sent in wasn't a supported model, and so we weren't able to accommodate her. However, as of today, it sounds like that was a really good thing because Copperhead OS has had some major, major issues recently. In order to understand these issues, we have to break down exactly how the code for Copperhead OS is licensed. Now, Copperhead OS is what's known as a source available code. So source available means that the code is available to the public, but you th there are certain stipulations about using it or replicating it or modifying it. So it's not open source. Um, and in order to piece this story together, because it kind of came out all over the Internet and then due to some of the legal resources that Copperhead OS, the company had, they tried to remove some of that discussion that had occurred online. And so we I had to go to cash pages to pull back up some of those discussions and pull some of that information back off. We have a very, very 
detailed show notes for you this week. All of those resources will be available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So if you want to read these for yourself, we're going to provide them for you. Um, I guess I should dis- I guess I should make the following disclaimers. I have no way of personally verifying that the people that are posting on these forms are the people who they that who they claim to be. It seems to be largely accepted by the internet community as a whole, which lends a lot of credibility towards me because if there's anything I've learned in broadcasting on the internet, it's don't lie on the internet. Every time I see somebody who makes up a story on the internet, they get sussed out like that. And so the fact that nobody on the internet has has called uh, has called Bolsheviks on these guys um, makes me think that this information is legitimate. But just understand that this is all taken off of forum posts and and multiple forms at that, so that I could piece all of this story together for you, so I could try to bring you the most accurate uh, coverage that I can. So, Copyright OS is a source available uh, project, and so Daniel, the lead developer, and really, you know. The, the founder, I guess, of the Copperhead OS project uh, says, quote, the code is completely public on GitHub. It's mostly licensed under GPL2 for the kernel and a non-commercial usage license for the user space code. Although I can change that for the subset that I own. The code is a mixture of code owned by myself and code owned by Copperhead. So that's he's referring to Copperhead, the company. It's primarily under a non-commercial license, so neither myself nor Copperhead can legally use the project as a whole commercially. The major issue with this is there isn't any clear division between these parts. It's not possible to move forward without an agreement, which is clearly not going to be happening. I attempted to do this as an open source community project. It was only me working on it, and I tried to do the same with a Linux hardened, which barely got off the ground and hardly has any changes implemented. It doesn't work, end quote. So that was each one of those blurbs was taken from a a response in Reddit. And one of them, I believe, was on Hacker News. And all of this has come to a all of this has come to light because of an email that James Donaldson, who is the CEO of Copperhead, the company, sent to Daniel, who is the lead developer and really the founder of the project. The email reads, and I quote, Daniel, it pains me to send this. Your actions over the last few weeks have been entirely inconsistent with your obligations to the company as an officer and as a fiduciary. You have breached your duties to the company and act in the best interests of the company and to maintain the confidentiality of the company business. As a result, the company is hereby suspending your employment with the company with pay, stipulating on you signing an employment agreement and discontinuing your access to the company-controlled platforms. As previously and repeatedly requested, you are forthwith provide the company with access to all company materials of which you have access to. Messages in reply on at Daniel McKay, which is his personal Twitter handle, and on the subreddit r slash Copperhead OS. You are similarly expected to immediately discontinue use publication, reference, or all other use of company name and logo. You are prohibited from discussing the confidential business with the company to outside parties, including clients, that are not your legal advisors. Should the company suffer damages as a result of your actions, the company shall take all necessary steps to recover those damages from you. Now, where to go with this? Um, I guess the first thing is... the. So let's start with this. The Twitter handle that that is Daniel's personal 
Twitter handle started out as the Copperhead Twitter handle, and then he changed that. Um, so the, the argument, the argument that, that has been being made on the internet is that Sean should, you know, he's being asked to give up his personal Twitter handle and he's being asked to give up his private messages inside of Reddit. And that's not entirely accurate. Maybe accurate for his Reddit username. It is not accurate for Twitter. If you go back and look at the cached Google documents, you can actually see that Twitter has the, the username that he is using now his Daniel username formerly was the Copperhead OS Twitter name. So the majority of those followers were there to follow Copperhead OS. And be, just because they didn't, he didn't distinguish between his personal life and Copperhead OS. That's not now becomes Copperhead OS's problem. That that continue should should continue to be his problem. Now, as soon as as soon as this happened, as soon as this email went out, the very next thing he did was he went to Twitter to say that he had used. A, um, a ATA erase, which is basically a function built into SSDs to erase this hard drive. And I want to take a minute to explain exactly how ATA erase works because I think it's a good lesson in and of itself. All SSDs by default are in fact encrypted. You may not be aware that it's encrypted, but every SSD made is encrypted. It has a private key. And basically when you provide power to that uh, to that uh, SSD, it uses the private key and decrypts your data and and at the hardware level, and then the drive is simply exposed to your software. So you may never know that that encryption decryption is taking place. What what the ATA erase command does is it deletes the private key. So the data remains on the SSD at the hardware level, but it's encrypted, and so you can't actually access the data because you've deleted your own private key. And this is in response to the fact that we didn't previously have a good way to erase data on SSDs. Traditionally, we would, what we do with with, um, with uh, spinning disks is we would write all zeros to the drive, all ones to the drive, all zeros to the drive, all ones to the drive, all zeros to the drive, all ones to the drive. And if you flip those bits back and forth enough times, the assumption was, and what works out in practice, is that drive is effectively, the data is gone. Well, SSDs have something called wear leveling. And so essentially, every time you want to write data to the disk, it tries to store it on chips that haven't previously been written to or the ones that have been written to the, le the least. And what that does is it allows the SSD to, quote unquote, wear more level or more evenly. And the problem with that is when you tell it to write all zeros, all ones, all zeros, all ones, you're not you can't actually tell the SSD where to write because that software is writing to different chips on the on, on, the, on the drive itself. And so it's very difficult, not to mention it, it really, really, really uh, wears down your SSD to, to write all zeros and all ones. And so the, this function of this ATA erase and this built-in encryption was built. And um, so that's the, that's, he tweeted that he actually used this ATA erase to erase the private keys, the signing keys. And so he writes, and I quote, it's not possible for them at this point to, to create updates without my signing keys. You could disable the updater app, but it doesn't really matter. James, that's the CEO of the company, did seize control over the company's infrastructure, but he can't make signed updates by me. So users are safe from whatever nonsense he would try to do. I already wiped all four sets of hardware containing the keys, so now there is no way to make a valid update. I can't do it. I can't be forced to do it. If this was a state-sponsored attack or something like that, it has been thwarted. 
It was certainly an attempt as a hostile takeover of the project, and it has failed. So basically, what what Daniel is saying, Daniel being the lead developer, is he's going out and saying, okay, listen, if these guys tried to steal, uh, if they're trying to take over my company, I'm I force them to fail. And and then he is, he says something interesting. He says if this was a state sponsored attack or something like that. And so I believe what he's implying here is that maybe the federal government came in and said, look, we went to Google and we said, we want access to all these people's phone and they gave it to us. Then we went to Apple and said, we want access to all of these people's phones and they gave it to us. Now we're coming to you, Copperhead OS, and we want access to all of your stuff so we can spy on users. And of course, the lead developer, the guy who founded the project based on security and you know privacy and all that of course he would never agree to that so they go to his business partner and they say you know you're the you're the reasonable type would you be willing to do that and uh, if he had said yes and again this is all speculation i have nothing to prove any of this other than a offhanded comment that this that daniel the lead developer says if that had happened daniel says he's taking the necessary steps to ensure that users are safe so then I started to look, what does Daniel Donaldson, what, what does the CEO of Copperhead, the guy who has initiated this entire, uh, you know, situation, what does he have to say? So I found a post from him. And this was later, I believe it was later deleted. And this is one of the ones we pulled from the, uh, from the, one of the cash pages. I'm James Donaldson, the CEO of Copperhead. We're hoping there is a peaceful resolution to this. It's very unfortunate that Daniel McKay is airing our dirty laundry. In internal confidential documents that are directed towards him, ironically from an at Gmail account, as he refuses to answer his at copperhead.co address now, I especially from a company asset at Copperhead OS that is damaging to Copperhead, the company, our users, and its employees. As it stands, Daniel McKay has has been and and still is a majority shareholder in Copperhead. I'm interested to an open discussion regarding these issues. Feel free to email me. Now, I have a couple of problems with that post. So the first is, I I also would like to know why a man who started a company for privacy and security enhancement and all of that, and he, he develops this entire system for... Android just, you know, a replacement for Android just to get away from Google and the Google sphere. And then he apparently doesn't want to check his work email address. He only wants to use his Gmail account, the account that's run by Google, the very company that he's trying to thwart. So that's curious to me. But I guess I could understand if you have a company and you know things are going awry, perhaps you move off because you don't want to be on company resources because they could seize that. But then the other thing that I have an issue with if you want to have an open and honest discussion, why would you do that over email? That doesn't seem very open at all, unless we're going to start a mailing list on this. He's responding to this, um, this, uh, this, Jonathan, this James Donaldson is re responding to a post on Hacker News. Why not just answer? Why not just answer the response? So one internet, uh, one internet user re replies on this Hacker News form, and he says. Daniel McKay is literally the guy behind Copperhead. He is the author of overwhelming majority of commits to Copper o Copperhead OS repos and almost single-handedly maintains hard the hardened Linux kernel. Quite literally, open any repo, and then he gives a link to the Copperhead repo, or HTTPS github.com slash Copperhead OS, and look at how much the stinger, and that's Daniel McKay's username, has been working on all of this. What you're doing is despicable, it is unfair. Please resign.
So then, um, then we have James Donaldson. He replies and he says, thanks for your feedback, but that's not going to happen. Copperhead exists because of our hard work and your inability to understand that displays your inability to understand the situation. Code does not sell itself, and companies exist to support employees and users not to attack each other on a public company account. Okay, so let's break that down for a second. First of all, there are plenty of projects that don't have a lot of PR that just have really good code, and they become quite prolific, actually. So I don't really agree with that first statement. Second of all, your inability to understand the situation. Well, for better or for worse, he has not explained the situation. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other factors, there aren't mitig other mitigating factors. Maybe there is a really good reason to let this guy go. But don't tell me or anybody else that we don't understand the situation if you're not willing to explain the situation. You could just say there are things you're not privy to and I'm not going to explain them. But don't tell me you, you know, your inability to understand that displays your inability to understand the situation. That To me, that those two things don't jive. Now, I started looking for Daniel McKay's answer to that because, okay, so there is a fair point in there, right? Like, if the Copperhead OS project was started for its users and has its users' best heart or best interests at, at hand, then obviously deleting these keys means that all of these users have essentially useless phones. Like, it's almost worse than having Android on them right now because now you have to deal with the fact that you're not getting any updates and if if his tweet is to be believed, there is no human being on the face of the planet that can push updates to these phones now. So in a couple of months, they're totally host. So he effectively dive-bombed his own project. So I started to look at for an explanation as to why did you do that, Daniel? On Twitter, Defcon Security, uh, user Defcon Security writes, before you do any damage... This is in response to his tweet that he is going to ATA erase all of these private keys. Before you do any damage, think of everyone that has paid for a service. This is being dealt with the wrong way and completely unprofessional. I am your biggest fan, but this is wrong. I've given you my word that it can be sorted out amicably, but the only but this way can only end one way. Think. And Daniel responds. He says, yes, they paid for a product which included a commitment to protecting them from the fallout of a situation like this. I had an obligation and a commitment to protect these signing keys at all costs and to destroy them if I felt they were at risk of compromise, which I certainly do. Now, that actually kind of makes some sense to me. I'm a principal person. I'm the kind of person that would cut his head off to spite his face every single time. I have a strong set of beliefs, and when I, if I ever felt like those beliefs were at jeopardy, I'd absolutely die. The number of times that Altaspeed Technologies has made a poor business decision on paper because the statistics don't support my personal beliefs. When we go out on a ledge, when we go out on a limb and say, here is this XYZ service that users could buy for X amount of dollars a month, and here is the privacy, security, open source solution that doesn't have these features, and they would have to pay for the infrastructure and run it themselves and pay us to manage it and all of that. On paper, it's very difficult to justify one business decision over the other. And I've done it time and time again because I have a personal belief, and I would rather follow that personal belief at all costs, even if it means costing me my company. And so far, at least, it's worked out really well. And thanks to the launch of the Ask Noah show and thanks for the publicity at Jupiter Broadcasting, we've only gotten more stable in those beliefs and I've only sunk my, my, my teeth in further. But I understand that kind of commitment, that kind of thing of saying, listen, I am called to a higher, not to steal a James uh, Comey quote, but I am called to a higher loyalty. I'm not loyal to the project. 
I'm loyal to the idea of privacy and security. So uh, the um, so Daniel he he expounds he continues on he says Copperhead could have been enormously successful if this is a this is back to the forum post Copperhead could have been enormously successful if James hadn't sabotaged it so much he always wanted to concentrate on figuring out ways of earning money with minimal work and has always been against selling to individuals rather than solely licensing to businesses. We could never see eye to eye on this or anything else like licensing, pricing, etc. And I just gave in to him in most areas while keeping things going since I wanted to try anyway. It's falling apart like this has been coming for a long time. I never could have predicted that it, he would betray me like this, but it's not unexpected that it would fall apart due to our strained relationships and inability to work together. I thought that if I failed, at least I would be in a situation where I could continue to use my free time for the updates, but that isn't what happened. Now, I'm not here to pass judgment on Daniel or James. I'm not part of the Copperhead OS project. I've never been to a Copperhead OS meeting, and I'm not privy to any company documents other than the ones that Daniel has posted online. So, to steal a line from Wendell, Wendell Wilson, I, I'm just some bozo on the internet. I, I don't know what happened, and I don't want to take a side, but here's what I do know. Number one. At least one of the parties appears to be able and willing to share information and have a discussion in an open forum. The second, the other party seems to only want to have a discussion behind closed doors. And I'm left asking myself, why is that exactly? Why is that? Why doesn't he want to have that discussion out in the open? Now, full disclosure, I wouldn't have that open discussion at Alta Speed. If I had a disagreement, I'd cut whoever it was loose and I'd move on with my day. And there's a difference here because so... We support open source, but at the end of the day, it's my name on the building, and it's a benevolent dictatorship. This is a community of one, and this it's not a community project. I make the decisions. If you don't like it, I'll help you find the door. And that model works for our customer and client base because we gave them our word that we will provide them a given service at a given rate. And they can either trust us, they can trust our reputation, or they can go elsewhere. And I don't care which one. It, well, that's not true. I do care. But... I don't care to the point that I'm going to compromise in the way that I think this place should be run. Copperhead OS is an entirely different boat. First of all, they're, they're, literally their branding is fundamentally tied to the idea that Google has repeatedly and continually abused their customers' trust. So their product is modeled on this idea of openness and trust. When, when there's a disagreement of the controlling parties, it is absolutely appropriate for the users and potential customers to be made aware of that internal dispute. And I don't know about you guys, but I'd much rather read the raw, dirty laundry than some PR blurb that has been carefully fine-tuned. And that's not me saying I like drama. We're covering the story because it's literally what everybody on the internet is talking about today. But my biggest point, and really the reason that we're talking about this story, and and how I'm going to try to spin this into as positive light as I can is that it fundamentally and perfectly exemplifies something I have said since day one of this program. Keep your code open source. I'm going to say that one more time for the people in the back of the room. Keep your code open source. Instead of this idiotic dance of, well, the kernel is lost, but the user lend is its source available, just just slap a GPL code sticker on the whole thing, throw it up on GitLab, and you'd be fine. Do you know what would have happened in this situation had they done that? James could have run Copperhead, Daniel could have run Nickelhead, and the user base could decide which project they want to support. 
Now the project is dead, Daniel's out of a job, in all likelihood James will be out of a job because Copperhead the company's about to die. Why? Because nobody can issue updates to the system, and so now, now the entire software project is dead because nobody wanted to give up their precious code. And to me, that's really sad. Again, open phones this hour, one 855 noah that's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Raymond is calling. Hey, Raymond, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah, thanks for taking my call. I called in a couple of weeks ago regarding a question, but I have an additional question. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I updated my Ubuntu. it's a VM guest, running on VMware Workstation 11, and now when it boots up, uh, all I get is a black screen. I'm not sure if I was running Ubuntu 16 or 17, because I think I installed it back uh, late in the fall. Any thoughts on how to interact with it again? Yep, yep, see this all the time. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward fix. Um, essentially, what you do is press, uh, get go into a terminal, and um, well, actually, what, here's what I would do. I'd restart the computer, and I can't when I can't get to a terminal. But anyway, right? And that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I understand. I, that's I'm 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 going through that in my head. So restart the computer because you restart it, then you're gonna then you at least can see Grub, right? No, it shows uh, checking like the file system to get some data. It says Ubuntu, and then the next screen it just goes black. Don't see Grub, just black well, after uh, the initial okay, stuff you've, on the screen. You've you've lost me now. So it's running it's running a file check system. It's running a file check system before it even tries to even even before it tries to boot. No, no, no. We're missing. Oh, we're missing I'm not something. Sure. No, we're, yeah, we're we're missing something here because that that can't yeah. be because I'll tell you why because the uh, the EFI system EFI or BIOS doesn't matter is going to hand off to, it has to hand off to a bootloader so you wouldn't be able to execute it wouldn't be able to check the disk unless Grub was working so there it, Grub might be maybe it just doesn't show anything that says Grub it just shows like maybe you see like the Lubuntu splash screen or something like that yeah so I see Lubuntu splash screen then the next yeah. screen is all black. And I can't yep. Okay. That. Good. Okay. We're, I'm back with you. Okay. It's still. It's. 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 What. Okay. So here's what we do. So when you see that. So hold down. Uh, let's see. I think it's the shift key. Let me double check here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and hold the shift key. And wh when the computer boots up, you're going to see. Then you'll actually get a grub menu. And one of the options is going to be edit boot parameters before actually booting. And so you scroll down to that menu. If you don't see that, the other option you might see in Grub is you might just see Lubuntu and then the version, so like Lubuntu 16.04. So you'll you'll highlight that, and then at the bottom you'll see it'll have a little uh, guide, and it'll say you know press E for example to edit the boot parameters before booting. So you press E, and go. It doesn't matter if you understand what all of those kernel parameters are, but just go all the way till the end till you see the word quiet, and right before the word quiet. Go uh, go back before the word quiet and insert the term no mode set n o m o d e s e t, and then make sure there's a space between no mode set and quiet, and go ahead and boot the system. And if that fixes your problem, and I'm 99.999% sure it will, um, then what you'll do there's a, then you can open up a terminal and modify the and modify your uh, your um your grub config to to persistently have that no mode set in there and i can have directions step by step directions on how to do that in the show notes um but i i see this problem i'd say once every 2 months and every time the answer is the same add no mode set and it boots right up okay sounds good 
Do you have time for my second question? Absolutely, sir. So you had mentioned, ironically, about Copper OS, and it sounds like that's a train wreck right now. But basically, uh, you didn't mention a phone that I could run it in. Now, I've gone and looked at XDA, and I looked at a lot of other places, and the phone I have never comes up for being able to put a, uh, how do you say, an independent Android version that I could have and do what I want with it. So and on a 6-inch uh, screen or 6.1-inch screen. Any thoughts there? Yeah. Do you, uh, oh, okay. So you're you're looking to purchase a phone, or you have a phone that you would like to run some alternative ROM on, and it's you're currently not finding one that's supported. Uh, both. So the first would be since mine is so old now, it's a Galaxy Note four running version six point something. It's rooted. I'd be willing to buy a new phone that I could run, you know, uh, the newest version of Android possible, but have it as open to me as possible so I can control everything on it. Gotcha. Um, well, if I was going to buy a phone to run an alternative ROM on, it, the answer would be clear. I'd buy the 6P because uh, uh, because that, that phone is literally... or Well, the 6P or the, or the Pixel 2, because both of those phones are, have an insane amount of popularity behind them. If I wasn't going to do that, if I was going to look for a the most uh, flexible operating system that you could run on your phone, have you looked at F-Droid? Yeah, I actually have it loaded on my uh, Galaxy Note 4 now, yep. Okay, and that doesn't work on that 6-inch phone that you're trying to get loaded on? Well, I don't have a 6-inch phone, so oh, I, I have see. a 5.5-inch or a 5.7. Yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah. I'm looking so you're looking to, to, you're looking to buy a phone. Possibly. Yeah, possibly, yep. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah, the next, next is 6P. So That's you said 6 Next to six feet, the way you'd go. Okay, all right. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah I do. Time. I, I appreciate I, your help. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Yeah, the Nexus 6P or the Google uh, the Google Pixel 2. The Google Pixel 2 is going to be a little bit more expensive, which is which is why I'm going for the for the 6P. Either one of those phones will be highly well supported. Kevin is calling from Canada. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Uh, yes. Hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. How can we help? Uh, so I've got a uh, Dell XPS 13 that I bought with uh, Ubuntu 1604. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, OS that came with it wasn't didn't work very well for me. Um, so I kind of just put it to the side for a while and then uh, waited till uh, Ubuntu uh, 1804 came out and I put uh, put that on it, the Mate version, mm -hmm. and things have been working much better with it overall. I just got a couple small issues with it. One is the, uh, uh, I'm having a bit of an issue with screen tearing. It's, uh, it's, uh, normally not too bad with, uh, with browsing a web page or something, but, uh, when, uh, watching a video, it can be uh, pretty noticeable. I'm wondering if you had any suggestions about that. Yeah, for sure. Is it, does it have a NVIDIA graphics card or does it have the uh, Intel graphics? It's the Intel. Intel graphics, man. And you're having screen tearing, huh? That is very strange. And you said it was an XPS? Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's an XPS 13 uh, 9360. It's got a 7,000-something i7 in it. Wow. Man, I tell you what, I would, uh, I, would, I would run, not walk, 
um, to my my telephone and I'd give Dell a call because something's wrong with that computer. Uh, I have I've been to the Dell factory, Kevin, and I, I've seen what they do firsthand. And all of those the, the entire XPS series is is hardware enabled for Linux. So all of those computers should work right out of the box with Linux with no problems whatsoever. And Dell officially supports that stance. And uh, I have I've personally loaded Ubuntu 18.04 onto an XPS. I've done I haven't done the 2018 version, but I've done the 2017 version. Uh, Chris has done the 2016 and the 2015 version and zero problems on Ubuntu Mate, on Ubuntu Proper, Ubuntu Gnome, and Integros. So if, if you're having uh, screen tearing issues, I'd absolutely give Dell a call. If it was an NVIDIA thing, there might be some a couple more things we'd look into, but 100% I would, I'd give Dell a call because I think there's something wrong with their computer. Okay. I was uh, kind of suspected something like that, but it was nothing. It kind of almost worked all the time, so... I couldn't, I had to <laughs> figure out, uh, you know, some, some way to put this to them that I, maybe was something was broken, but, uh, yeah, for sure. McCall, I, I guess the, the other thing that I was having trouble with, and it affects this laptop, but I've had it on all kinds of computers that, um, run Linux is where, uh, the mouse cursor speed, I mean, all these distros, well, quite a few of them that I've used at least have, you know, sliders or uh, values that you can change. And some of them work, but a lot of the time they just don't have any effect. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I hear you. The has one speed. <laughs> yeah, I completely hear you. Uh, what I've done is I've actually gone to Kubuntu for that exact reason. I actually had a friend that was running Ubuntu Mate, and he had that exact same problem. He wanted to increase the sensitivity, and he wasn't able to do that. We're going to roll an interview for you guys here from Southeast Linux Fest. I think we went a little long, so we might uh, might have to chop the end off of it. But uh, here we go. I'm here at Southeast Linux Fest, and Zach Underwood's a good friend of mine. We've had him on the show a couple of times talking about uh, WISPs and Wi-Fi. I mean, the man is a born genius when it comes to networking stuff. Hey, Zach, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to come here. So I understand that you just recently built a house. And when I say you recently built a house, like a lot of people, they when they say they recently built a house, they mean, well, they hired a contractor and the contractor built the house. Did you actually built your house? Tell me that. Uh, tell me about that. Did that that give you a lot of flexibility in how to do the wiring and stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. I got a lot of flexibility when doing that. Um, when well, for, first let me start. the The house itself is not a big house. It's it's only four hundred and forty <laughs> square feet. It is built on a foundation. Oh, cool. Uh, so it is a tiny house. Technically, yes, it is. Okay. Um, it's twenty two by twenty feet. I do have sixteen foot vaulted ceilings, so so it gives a big airy feel. Okay. Um, even though it is so small, but it. It, f it functions for me and my wife. Um, it's me and my wife, um, two dogs and a cat, and 440 square feet. Wow. So you're, you're building this house out, and, and knowing you, you have networking out the wazoo, and I would guess the vast majority, if not exclusively, all of that equipment is ubiquity? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I was able to fill up a, an entire 24-port um, patch panel with wiring from a um, room the size of most people's master bedroom. Really, and, and I got access points. I got cameras. I've got even cameras out on the on a pole because I got a long driveway, so they're way, they're out by the head of the driveway, so I can see traffic coming in and out um, without actually having to go outside. Okay, so talk to me about the security of this because there's a lot of people out there that would say, well, you put your cameras on the internet, and if the cameras are on the inside of your home, now they could be hacked or compromised, or people could intercept the the stream or something like that. Are you worried about any of that? Um, not really. I mean. All of my cameras are external. Um, I, I purposely chose not to have any in, 
um, any cameras within inside the house. Um, so if it is compromised, so what? You get to see a grassy field with a driveway in the middle. Yeah, without cameras inside the house, it's not such a big deal, uh, for sure. And those are all running Ubiquiti? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm using the um, Ubiquiti cameras with the Ubiquiti MVR. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's good for what you get um, price-wise, um, and it serves my needs. Sure. And you've got, are, is it the like the G3 domes, or it's the pros? or? Um, I have all of the uh, bullets. Um, okay. I, I find them more flexible for what I'm using, um, okay. and I think they are a little better um, weather rating. Okay, sounds good. And that's actually what you deployed here at Southeast Linux Fest. You've taken those little uh, cameras, bullet cams, and you've put them in all of the rooms to generate RTMP feeds back to the broadcasting systems. Exactly. I'm using the camera feed um, to do the picture-in-picture. -picture. Um, and so I built a um, wooden stand, essentially, out of scrap 2x4s um, that I had laying around. And um, that captures the speaker's image and then relays it into the computer for OBS to record the picture-in-picture. That's really cool. And uh, so are those cameras that are in those rooms, are those eventually going to wind up as additional cameras in your house? Uh, they will probably be installed on in my house within a week. Really? So where do you not have coverage? I mean, you've covered, the, it sounds like you've covered the vast majority of the outside of your house. Uh, my goal is to have every external um, entrance, whether it's a window or a door to my house, covered with a camera. And then also have the driveway covered. So if something comes down the, down the driveway, um, I can see it. And, and when I was building the property, I did have a break-in. Um, really? A, yeah, I had a shipping container uh, where I was keeping materials and tools. Um, and actually, while I was at um, the Southern California Linux Expo doing the networking, it was broken into. Um, they, they cut the bolts. And so as a result of that, I... Uh, since I didn't have permanent power, I had to build a solar setup that would run a computer and all the cameras w during the construction phase to act as security. Mm -hmm. And so I and set up four solar panels, a charge controller, and uh, I believe it was um, 24 AGM car-sized batteries. And what I like about this is it, it blends a lot of different spaces. Obviously, it blends the technical space. It blends the maker space. It blends the, you know, economic living space. I, you know, we've not talked about s tiny homes on the Ask Noah show before because it's not really a technical concept. But now that I'm thinking about it and I'm hearing you explain it, there are some parallel parallels to be drawn. So, for example, we talk about owning your communication. We talk about owning your technology, owning your software, why not own your house? I mean, how much of that, do you mind telling me how much you paid for your tiny house? Um, so the, the land itself, it's three and a half acres, mm -hmm. um, about 15 minutes um, outside of Spartanburg, um, and I paid 27000 for it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the house itself, um, between materials and what I did contract out, was um, that I contracted the foundation, mm -hmm. um, the driveway, and the drywall out to a contractor, but I did everything else. Mm -hmm. um, for all of that, I got about 45000 in the house itself. Okay. Um, I did have to take out a loan for the 45000 part mm -hmm. um, and using the land as collateral against for the loan. And I should have that paid off within two years. Okay. So what I'm saying is in two years, you're going to own your own house. Yes. Um, I'm going to own the studio, which um, once that's done, I will start construction on the main house and the studio will go up for rent. Okay. So this is just actually step one in a master plan. Exactly. Um, my goal is to for the uh, rent income to cover 100% of the mortgage of the main house so that I don't have um, a mortgage payment ever. Wow. 
Now that's some forward thinking. How did you learn how to build houses? You're a network engineer by, by training. I mean, how, how, how did you get into building houses? Um, I was a weird kid growing up. Um, I, I, watched, I believe that. <laughs> I watched a lot of This Old House um, with really? Norm, Norm Abram and um, Steve and, and the other gentlemen on there. And I've, I've been watching, you know, since 92, 93, um, and just kind of osmosing it in and um, just retaining it over and over. And also my dad's an engineer, mm-hmm. um, electrical engineer, so I grew up with that engineering mindset. Sure. Um, and so I... I you know, it, it was nothing for me to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to frame a house. I'm going to wire a house. I'm going to plumb a house um, and, you know, put a roof on, put the siding on, put windows on and have it all inspected by the county. That, that's a big thing is is my, my place is permitted. I went through the permitting process. I went through the inspection process and I have a legal house. I don't ever have to worry about code code enforcement or someone else coming going ah, ah, this is out of specification I have my certificate of occupancy from the county saying this is a legitimate home and and you did that all based off of essentially a TV show pretty much yes you know what's incredible about that Zach is I think what that shows us is that this old adage of oh did you see that on TV what you read it on the internet oh, I couldn't possibly you know you shouldn't trust you shouldn't trust everything you see on TV you shouldn't trust everything you read on the internet well sure not everything but a lot of there is a lot of really genuine content out there, and so if you're if you're looking at shows that better your life, that teach you something, and you walk away with that, you can turn that into real life savings. Uh, absolutely, I think one of the biggest um, benefits of watching these type programs is you start to learn terminology, yes. and that really helps when you start start to. Um, use um, like the National Electric Code mm-hmm. reference manual. It's like 600 pages long, mm-hmm. but because you know the keywords, you can search that document and find the, the exact code that applies to you. And sure. so you can make sure that you follow in the code so that when the inspector comes, he, he is not having to try to educate you, which well, could, could could make him, you know, it could make him angry mm-hmm. that, you know, oh, I'm wasting my time with this idiot. Um, and so give you a harder time. But because um, I was able to um, look at the NEC code and go, oh, yeah, I need to put in these arc fault, ground fault outlets in this location. I can use normal um, breakers in this location. I was able to save a lot of pain for myself because the inspector wasn't um, critiquing nearly as hard because he saw that I knew what I was doing, even though I wasn't a licensed contractor. Talk to me about the networking that you've done inside of your house. So you have cameras, you've filled a 24 uh, 24, uh, port patch bay, but talk to me about the actual networking. What networking gear do you have inside of your house? Um, So it's all ubiquity. Um, I got um, ubiquity POE switches, cameras, access points. Um, access points, plural. Oh for, yeah, for 400 square feet, man. Uh, so there's one access point on the house. There's there's an access point inside the container because a shield, a steel shipping container is an excellent RF cage. So uh, I have one on top of okay, the. Okay, hold on a second. Back up now. You lost me. We're shield, steel shipping containers. You yes, yeah. I have a steel shipping container that's on my property. I originally was using it to store construction materials. It was okay. what was broken into. I see. Um, but I still have it on my property because it's great storage. So you bought it? Yes, I bought it. Okay. It, it was about twenty five hundred delivered for a forty foot. Okay. Um, and with and you know I have the cameras on the container in the container on the house out on the pole. My goal is to no matter where I go on this three and a half acre property, I will always have my Wi-Fi. Now, how did you get how how did you get 
man, you're blowing my mind. How did you get networking out to these poles in the middle of this, you know, in the middle of your yard, essentially, or to the, or, or to this shipping container? I mean, I imagine it doesn't come pre-wired. No, no, it doesn't. So w- what I did is um, in the setting up the driveway, um, I went ahead and trenched um, conduit in. So I have one inch conduit <laughs> running everywhere on my property and um, I pulled fiber um, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I pulled, <laughs> I pulled fiber in this conduit. It's some people, some people are happy to get Wi-Fi in the garage. Zach, he runs fiber to his shipping container out in his yard. Oh my God! My, my, my long-term goal with the shipping container is half of it will remain storage. The other half I will build out as a home office with air conditioning, um, a, a man door, and fiber. So yeah. I'll be able to have 10 gigs. Or or higher, I could even be at I can be at forty gigabit. I mean, there's no there's no practical limit in fiber. Right. Um, Send those print documents real fast back into the house. Exactly. No, and I, I, I don't mean to poke fun. I think that's absolutely incredible. I I love people like you that that do something and do it so well that you're like, I mean, really, you know, we're you know we're joking, we're giving you a hard time, but the reality is that is a fifty year networking job, right? Yeah. If if not more, I mean, you you can't really outrun light. Yeah, exactly. And and what I chose to put in was single mode fiber, which has the uh, it's longer range, but it also has historically proven to be more future proof because they're doing more development work in single mode versus multi mode. Okay, so talk to us what what is the difference between single mode and multi mode fiber for somebody that has terminated some cat five in their house but they've not really run fiber or worked with it before so my understanding is um multi-mode is a thicker fiber it's a lower quality fiber um and it's more designed for within a building within a data center um single mode is a much higher quality more expensive um thinner um and when the light goes down it, it's it's a perfectly smooth all the way through mm. where with multi-mode it's about it, it basically refracts off the walls of the fiber all the way down um and so with single mode you get much um higher range you know without repeaters you can go i think it's 100 kilometers now with just sfps that you plug into your switch you can go 100 wow. kilometers on sing, on single mode without amplifiers wow that's incredible. And so you've buried this all over your property, inside and out? Um, well, th- what I do is I have the conduit um, come from underground and into the house and mm-hmm. into where I have all the networking equipment. So it does. it's not exposed. The fiber is never exposed to anything. It, it, it's, it's always in the conduit. And, and inside of the house, then you have copper running around? Yeah, yeah. The um, It was a lot easier just to run um, Cat6 everywhere. Cat6A? Eh? Uh, no, it's just normal Cat6. Um Everything in there, um, I'm fine with being gigabit, okay. um, and that's fine for my needs um, long-term. Now, in the home office, I'll, I'll have fiber. You, really? Right to the node? Oh, yeah. Um, fi- fiber or um, DAX, direct attached copper, yeah, yeah. Um, and use those for uh, my servers, my desktops, everything I can possibly get 10 gig to, because I, I want my baseline for anything that's moving any data to be 10 gigs. And all of those servers are in your basement? Um, well, they will be in the container. Um, oh, really? Yeah. 
So they're going to be in the home office. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be in the home office, and they're going to be quiet enough where it's still enjoyable to be in the home office. So, what are you running right now for your uh, for your uh, like the NVR? And I'm su- I'm assuming you have a Unify controller. Yep. Yeah. So, um, actually, I brought one of the servers here. It's a Super Micro um, Tower server that right now it's stuck up in my unfinished loft. Um, okay. And, and as soon as the home office is done, it, it will get moved out there. And just so we're clear, that is not a quiet machine. No, it actually is. It, it is. Um, it is a. Uh, it's a workstation class super micro. Oh, okay. So it, it is very quiet. Anything else that you've done that you think is particularly noteworthy, or any plans that you have that you know, like well, you know, maybe running you know fiber out to the forest and having access points on every trees or something? Well, I think something interesting I did for self this year was the land cache. Um, so um, we had a land party this year, and um, one of the games we were playing was Team Fortress Two, which is an eight and a half gig download. Um, even though we have gigabit. Um, to the hotel this year, I still wanted the better performance of having an on-site cache. Mm-hmm. And so there's a um, there's a GitHub group called Zero Ping Heroes. Um, uh, it's a repo, and they ha- they host a LAN party in Europe. Um, and so they developed a lot of these tools for land for doing LAN parties, LAN mm-hmm. caching, mm-hmm. and their their repo it works amazing. We're, um, I think we're now at over 500 gigs saved that was served off the local cache. Wow. And so what what this is doing, for those that maybe don't understand, is that the first time data... So you have mirrored the Ubuntu repos, you've mirrored the Steam software, all this. And so the first time somebody goes to download something off of any of these sources, it pulls it into the network, and then it stores it, caches it on your server. And the next time the next user comes out and says, I want to update my Ubuntu box... <clears throat> as long as you're not on the broadcasting VLAN, it <laughs> finds that server and it downloads the packages and then you can update that box. And you haven't actually talked to the outside world a second time. Yep, that, that is correct. I am I am munging, manipulating all DNS requests for um, Linux repos, Windows um, updates, Apple updates, Steam, Origin, Blizzard, and I think Riot. Um, so I, I'm intercepting all the DNSs for those. And if my box has it, it serves it directly. If not, it goes out and fetches it. One thing is I don't break SSL. So if you make an SSL connection, I'm running um, SNI proxy. Mm-hmm. And so what it does is it will proxy the request out to the um, originating server without um, opening the packet. Mm-hmm. So I don't break SSL. And uh, this this entire system is running on a Linux server. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's Ubuntu 18.04 with um, the data storage back end as being ZFS because I really wanted the caching. Because um, I, I have access to SSDs and mechanical drives, but mm-hmm. not enough SSDs for the storage. So I, the back end of the storage is mechanical drives with two um, layer two arcs for ZFS. And mm-hmm. then I also have the RAM um, arc. Um, and so if the file is requested enough, ZFS just moves it into RAM and starts serving it out of RAM, and RAM will saturate a 10-gig interface. Wow. So that was uh, Zach Underwood from Southeast Linux Fest. Zach's going to be back on the program. We're actually going to be out at his place in a couple of weeks, and we'll, so we'll give you the uh, on-the-ground uh, tour, as it were, and we will uh, we'll, we'll report back and maybe even have a video. Uh, uh, next week, I, I believe it's next week, we're going to be doing an episode on SIP and PBX, and we're also going to tie in a new idea and a new way that you can get on the Ask Noah show to ask questions. So we ask you to tune in next week to, to hear that. We've also worked out a deal with our friends and 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 the people who provided our broadcast phone systems, Vox Telesis. So if you have placed a call 
into the Ask Noah show, then you've been facilitated by the equipment that they provided. And they've worked out a special deal for you guys. So you can go to foxtelassist.com slash Ask Noah. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, but you're going to want to do that before next week because next week will be the time to put it into practice. Hey, did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter. Use the handle AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Ben, our producer, and Sarah, all call screeners. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com. Mm-hmm.